Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. Hey, good morning. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Jessica Stafford. I'm the Executive Director of Family Ministries here, and I am super excited to be here with you this morning as we wrap up our Asking for a Friend series. I've loved our time together over these past five weeks as we've been talking about common questions, about tough questions, and just hearing um, the answers to some what we all have questions about our faith. But I have to confess a little something to you that my favorite moment of this series hasn't happened on a Sunday morning. So I don't know how many of you know, but earlier on in the series on social media, we did a little asking for our kids segment. I don't know if any of you saw that, but we asked parents to submit questions that their kids had about faith and about God. And I just wanted to take a few minutes to share my top three favorite questions. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we got, um, so I'm going to start from the bottom. Okay. My, my number three was, does God know the Easter bunny? Okay. <laughs> We got, is Jesus as old as my mom? And then my personal favorite was, does Jesus have a unicorn? (laughs) So I love those questions. And we got some really, really real great ones as well. I mean, our kids have real questions about their faith. And they were asking about who created God and Does everyone go to heaven? And they have these real questions. So I love that we've created a space at Community of Hope, even down to our youngest kids, to know that this is a safe place to ask those questions. Um, You know, if you've been around here any amount of time, you know that we work really hard to create environments here where it's safe to explore your faith, safe to express doubt. And that's been really personally very important to me. When I was first starting to follow Jesus as a high schooler, I can remember people saying to me that I was too smart to be a Christian. And I felt like when they said that, that it meant I just needed to turn off my brain, close my eyes, and just believe. And I felt like it made me scared to ask questions because I thought everything was just going to unravel if I thought about it too hard. But that's not true of our faith. And so I'm so grateful that COH is a place where you can ask those questions and we can explore the evidence for our faith. One of the places that we've done that historically here is in a group led by Kathy and Vic for many of years called our Skeptics Group, which is a group for people who have questions about their faith or who want to see the evidence for why they should believe. And so I just wanted to take a moment to tell you that even though Kathy and Vic are moving at the end of July, we're still hosting that group in the fall. Um, It's going to be under a new name called Faith Questions. So if this is a series that has really resonated with you or you still want to explore deeper, keep an eye out for that coming this fall. But today what we're going to do is we solicited questions from you guys over the past couple weeks. And so Kathy and Vic are going to come up and join me and they're going to answer those questions. So yes, give them a hand. So you all know Kathy is our Executive Director of Discipleship, and then Vic is a New Testament professor at Palm Beach Atlantic. So we're going to answer some of your questions. I feel like we should have game show music. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So our first question I really loved because all of us want to know Jesus and want to be just like him. And so this question was a really practical question. 
um, who says that a friend of mine says Jesus was a vegan. I can't find anything in the Bible that he actually ever ate meat or even fish. So I'm curious, Vic, I'm going to have you answer this. Was Jesus a vegan? Well, thanks for the opportunity to, to do this, Kath and I love doing this together. Um, was Jesus a vegan? That's a, it's a great question, and it's really worth exploring a little bit. When you look into the New Testament, um, here's what you find. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Jesus asked his disciples once for some food, and they handed him fish to eat. And John's gospel points out that Jesus himself put on a fish fry for his disciples. We also know that uh, Jesus celebrated Passover regularly from his youth all the way up with his disciples. And part of the Passover celebration, the central part, was eating lamb. So that's what we know about Jesus and eating meat. But that's not all there is to say about the subject. Um, when we look more broadly at the subject of eating in the Bible, it's interesting that in the creation account in, G in Genesis, God specifically gives humans only plants and fruit to eat. And since the creation account portrays God's ideal for how to live, you can really make a strong case that God's original intention was for us to be vegetarians. And when we look at what the Bible says about God restoring the world at the end of time, it tells us there will be no more death and that the lion and the lamb uh, Will, the lion will lie down with the lamb, which is a symbol of peace between them. I don't know about you, but if I were the lamb, I would just be a tad worried. <laughs> yeah. So it's possible that in heaven, humans and animals will be vegetarians. However, we also read that after the flood, God gave humans permission to eat animals. So what it looks like then is that eating meat might have been a concession God made to humans who are living in a broken world. And as a result, um, a number of friends that I know, people and Christ other Christians I know, have a personal conviction that they shouldn't eat animals. They do that because they want to live into this creation ideal, and they do it out of a desire to protect the environment and to help the entire world have enough food. So scripture clearly gives, uh, God gives uh, clearly a permission to eat meat. In fact, in, chapter, in Romans uh, chapter 14, Paul directly addresses the question about whether to eat meat or just vegetables. And Paul answers by saying that we should follow our personal convictions here while being respectful of the convictions of others in this matter. Okay, thank you. So I guess we're all okay for Memorial Day barbecue then tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Kathy. I don't want to leave, get you off the hook that easy. <laughs> okay, Kathy, this next question for you, is for you. And um, this person is asking, she said, basically she wants to know, do Christians have to be a Republican? And she said, I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> doesn't want anyone to get mad. <laughs> okay, so um, originally this was going to be Pastor Dale and me answering, and you can see questions like this may have scared him off. So actually, Pastor Dale is sick today. I love doing this with Vic, but why did I get this question? Is my... 
Um, okay, so at Committee of Hope, we don't endorse any one political party because we know that they're both imperfect, right? And we don't want to attach the name of Jesus to anything that could harm his name. I heard someone say once that mixing politics with our Christian faith is a lot like mixing dirt and ice cream, right? The, the ice cream might not hurt the dirt, but the dirt sure messes up the ice cream, Right? So, first of all, remember, both political parties tend to demonize each other. That's just what they do. They always accuse each other of not caring about certain issues. So, Democrats accuse Republicans of not caring about poverty or racism, and Republicans accuse Democrats of not caring about issues like abortion. But we need to realize there's more than one way to try to solve the issues of our society. And let's not get sucked into that divisive way of thinking, especially in the body of Christ. We want to give each other the benefit of the doubt and assume that the other one does care about these important issues for Christians. Secondly, <clears throat> I think it's important that we never let our political party <clears throat> determine our morality. And sometimes I see that happening. Christians can identify so strongly with their political party that they become blind to where their party is not in line with Jesus' values. I've seen it happen on both sides. If we're handling our politics well, there should be some things in our political party that we disagree with. If you fully support everything that your political party stands for, I think you might be in the danger zone. Our identity and our highest loyalty should always be to Jesus Christ, not to our politics. Amen. And then thirdly, I think it's interesting that Jesus lived in a time with a lot of political parties. He didn't endorse any of them. He actually invited people from different political parties, opposing political parties, to be a part of his disciples. And they learned to love each other. And that impressed the world around them. It attracted people to Christ. The New Testament says that we as Christians should view our highest loyalty and our citizenship as being in heaven. And, not, and to see ourselves more like foreigners here in our own country. Now, our country gives us the right to vote, and I hope we all seek to do that in line with our Christian values. But no political candidate is the hope of the world. Only Jesus is. Amen. <laughs> okay, Vic, this next one is for you. Is it a sin to pray for God to harm evil people like Putin? Give them the easy one, you know. <laughs> uh, thank you for that question. Uh, since my father was born in Ukraine, and since I have uh, Ukrainian relatives living there now, and a number of them who have fled from the country, um, I've got personal skin in this question, so to speak. Yeah? Um, and when you see Putin uh, and what he's doing, if you aren't really mad at the destruction and death that he is causing then you need to put your hand on your heart and check if you're breathing. In the Bible, especially the book of Psalms, shows us that when we talk to God, we can be totally honest about whatever is in our heart. Okay? David was often shockingly honest about, uh, with God about how angry he was with people who were unjustly trying to hurt him. And many times... Uh, David even asks God to wipe his enemies off the face of the earth. Okay? And God seems to be okay with praying these kinds of straight-from-the-gut prayers. 
However, I think one of the reasons David is called a man after God's own heart is because he doesn't take matters into his own hands and take revenge on his own. Instead, he takes his anger to God in prayer and asks God to deal with, with that situation. So to pray for, to, for God to stop an evil person who is hurting others is in line with the heart of God. And it's in line with praying for God's will to be done on earth. A while ago, we as a church learned the P-R-A-Y pattern of prayer. And that last letter, Y, is important here. Where we yield the results to God. And trust him to respond to our prayer in his wisdom. So when I pray for the Ukraine, and I pray it every day, I pray that God would bring justice down on Putin and that God would stop him and the war. But I leave it up to God how he'll do it. Thank you, Vic. Okay, so Kathy, how do you start a conversation about your faith with someone who seems resistant? How bold should one be? How persistent? Wow, I love that question. I love the heart behind it. I believe that the reason God leaves us here on earth after we get saved instead of taking us right up to heaven is because he wants us here to tell people about him. And it's so easy to get distracted from that with everyday life. So we should really start each day just praying, Lord, use me today to help others. And we should be alert to God's promptings um, to have conversations. Um, But this question here is about people who are resistant. Um, When Vic and I first started out as missionaries in Austria, where we were for about 16 years, um, it's known to be a very resistant country to faith. And one of our mentors told us that evangelism among resistant people is really a lot like putting out a piece of cheese for a mouse. You put out that little bit, just a tiny piece, to see if there's interest. And if they're interested, you can put out another one. So what are we saying here? You won't know if they're really resistant unless you at least put a little something out there, right? So we don't want to assume. But if there isn't interest, it doesn't really pay to push things on them. So in everyday conversation, look for ways to just very briefly interject that you know Jesus, but mentioning your church, maybe your small group, and then just see if there's interest. You never know when someone might be actually looking for some hope and some help in their lives. One of my favorite verses about evangelism is 1 Peter 3.15. says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. It's just brilliant. So first we see you have to earn the right to say something about faith by living in a way that makes people ask you, why do you have this hope? And when they ask, you don't have to dump the whole Bible on them right? You just tell them about your hope in Jesus. And I love how Peter reminds us to always treat people with gentleness and respect. And respect for someone who's resistant to faith means don't be pushy, don't argue, and don't do all the talking. That's one of our biggest mistakes as Christians. When someone is resistant, one of the best things we can do is invite them to talk, be curious, ask them questions, and really listen. I've noticed when someone makes it clear to me that they don't want to hear about my faith, if I can just soften the soil, that's what evangelism is at that point. What do I mean? Just helping them be drawn to Jesus, 
right? Through kindness. That's one of the things our church really bases evangelism on. Kindness, serving others, loving others, and being interested in them and having a real friendship with them. And don't forget to pray for them because God can change resistant hearts and warm them up to him. We've seen it happen again and again. And then keep putting that little piece out and to see if they're interested and and bite on it. All right? So God will be working in response to your prayers. Thank you. Okay, Vic. This one is an interesting one. Does God give her does God ever give up on us on let's start over. Does God ever give up on us and was the flood actually God giving up on people? Um two really great questions. Really tough questions. A lot of books have been um written on them. And so I'll let Kathy answer that. <laughs> Sorry, your name's on the sheet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's, let's take the first question. Does God ever give up on us? I think it's really important to start with what the Bible says about who God is. Jesus highlights God's character in three back-to-back parables in the book of Luke, Luke 15. And in the first two parables about the lost coin and the lost sheep, God is portrayed as pursuing people who are lost and who have messed up their lives. And like the shepherd, God goes after wayward people. And the third parable about the prodigal son focuses particularly in on how God deals with people who have deliberately rejected him. And there are two things that I think are important to notice in this parable. First of all, the father lets the son go. The son is portrayed as having a choice to stay with the father or to reject him. And just like the father, God allows the people the dignity of choosing for or against him. Second, when the son who'd made a mess of his life finally decides to come back to the father, the text says this, When he was a long way off, the father saw him and began running toward him. You see, the father apparently had been scanning the horizon all this time, hoping and waiting for the son to return. And when the father sees him, he runs toward the son and embraces him. And I think together these three parables show us three things about God. One, God is always pursuing lost people. Two, God has a stance of eager openness to welcome anyone who turns back to him no matter what. And three, if people choose to walk away, God will give them what they want. So does God ever give up on us? I would say no, he doesn't. Like the eagerly waiting father in Jesus' parable, his hands are always outstretched, hoping and waiting for people to turn back. Now, the second question is really challenging. Was the flood God giving up on people? Again, a lot to say here, but I think the best way to approach this with the limited time that we have is to, again, look at how God himself describes himself. And we get that in Exodus 34, where God says of himself that he's loving, compassionate, gracious, and that he's eager to forgive sin. 
But it also says, but God also says of himself, that he won't leave the guilty unpunished. So God here, in how he describes himself, emphasizes his love and his willingness to forgive the wrongs that humans commit. But when people stubbornly persist in perpetrating evil long-term, there comes a point where God has to act in line with his nature, which is marked both by compassion and justice. So in the story of the flood, we see that humanity had stubbornly engaged in evil for such a long time that they had become hardened into a permanent state where hurting and killing had become hopelessly ingrained in them, in who they were. And God in his mercy held out for a long time, hoping for change, but eventually he sees that humanity has reached a point of no return. And he realizes he has no choice but to start over again, and he does that with Noah and his family. Now, it's probably not satisfying because it's a really tough question, but I think given the time, that's all we can say. Thank you. I know each of these questions you could answer in multiple hour lectures, so <laughs> you're getting the tip of the iceberg here. Okay, Kathy, these next three questions are going to go to you, and they're kind of all in the realm of questions between free will and God's sovereignty. So the first one is, isn't free will part of the equation of everything happens for a reason? Great question. Uh, yes, it is. So Pastor Dale preached on this a couple weeks ago, and I think we just have to be really careful. We all say that pretty often, everything happens for a reason, um, and we just have to be careful about the implications of that. Yes, God's involved in the lives of people, and oftentimes something may happen to you that you're disappointed with at first. Maybe you didn't get a job, or a boyfriend broke up with you, or you didn't get a house you wanted, and later on you realize, no, God was in that, and there was a reason, and it was actually good that I didn't get that thing. That's great. But if we say everything happens for a reason, we actually make it sound like God is the one causing bad things to happen in this world. And I would hope that nobody here thinks that God caused that shooter to go into the uh, school in Uvalde, Texas and, and shoot those children and teachers, right? So that's where we need to be careful. It gets a little problematic to say everything happens for a reason in a case like that. If you're talking to someone whose child has been killed in a car accident or someone who is raped, you don't want to start with a phrase like that because it makes it sound like God just caused this horrific thing because he wanted to teach you something. And I've seen people lose their faith over that. So when dealing with a difficult topic, like why do these tragedies happen, I think it's wise to start, like Pastor Dale always says, start with what's clear in Scripture and then just kind of go step by step. So first of all, Genesis tells us that God created everything good. Whatever God made, it was good. And then the book of James tells us that God is the source of all good in our world. So God did not create evil. Sometimes people say, well, didn't God create Satan? He created him as a beautiful angel. And then Satan made a choice. And that's really the second thing that's clear in Scripture. God created both humans and angels with free will, where they could make a choice. And the angel, Lucifer, made a choice to rebel against God, and he got other angels to rebel, and now there's this whole demonic world. 
And humans, who were also created good, they made a choice to rebel against God. And when you think about it, God had given humans the assignment, the honor, the responsibility of ruling over his earth. And we basically handed it over to Satan. And now scripture says that Satan is the ruler of this world. So that kind of leads us to the next question in this group of three. Yes, which is, wasn't it poor judgment for God to give people free will? <laughs> I'll, let me give a little context because this may, this person says, if I weren't already convinced of God's great wisdom, I would think this was a lapse in judgment. Why did he give us the keys when he knew we'd just drive ourselves off a cliff the first chance we got? <laughs> so that's a great question, right? And a tough one. Um, and I don't really have the answer, except that it seems to have been very important to God to have genuine loving relationships with people and not forced robotic ones. I think we all know genuine love has to be chosen. And it mattered enough to God to have those real loving relationships with us that he made us with free will. Now, that seems like a risk, and a risk like that seems crazy, unless you think about us as parents right? We all know that having a baby leads to sleepless nights and dirty diapers and a lot of expense and screaming kids and, right, a lot of hurt in our lives. And yet most of us decide it's worth it to have a child. And God is like that. I think that's God's image within us where we say relationships are worth it, even if they're going to cause us some pain. So if God is not the cause of suffering in this world, where does it come from? That's what we all want to know, especially in a time like this after what happened in Texas last week. The Bible mentions three main causes of suffering. First of all, when humans sinned, creation changed. Something broke in the way that God, God had made everything perfect, made everything good, and yet the world is now broken. Romans 8 describes it as creation is now groaning because it's currently in bondage to decay. So I think we can assume that the world as it is now is not the way God originally made it. And apparently things like cancer and physical deformities and things like that really started at the moment of the fall. So nature itself is one of the causes of hurt in our world because it's broken. And then secondly, people, right? Our evil decisions are a lot of the reason for suffering in this world. God gave us free will, and you can trace most of the pain and suffering in the world back to the decisions of sinful people. Even natural disasters would often be minimized if people would live the way God intended. And then the third thing, and this is what Pastor Dale really tried to touch on a couple weeks ago, is the free will of all these spiritual beings that are around us all the time. Now, if you're not a Christ follower, this can sound crazy, right? But we believe that there's a whole world of spiritual beings influencing things in our world. And as strange as it may sound, um, humans get caught up in the warfare between the evil forces of Satan and the good forces that God is leading. Now, this warfare view that Pastor Dell talked about is described most clearly in Ephesians 6.12, where it says, Our struggle is not just against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. So we need to be in prayer about that. So why do so many people say everything happens for a reason? It just seems to come to our lips. Why do we assume that God's the one controlling everything, even tragedies? I think the reason is because God is so good at bringing good 
out of even situations that he didn't mean to, that he didn't intend to happen to us. And so it looks like, it almost looks like God sent the tragedy in the first place. Um, so Romans 8.28 talks about this. Paul writes there, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So look at that verse closely. In all things God works, but God doesn't cause all things, but he's so good at working in all things to bring something good out of it. So a lot of things happen in our world that God did not cause. I don't believe God caused what happened in Texas. But he is so amazing that he can creatively work to bring something good in someone's life, even out of tragic situations that he did not want to happen. That leads us then maybe to the third question. So the third question is, doesn't the Bible teach that God is sovereign over absolutely everything? Okay, so we've already touched on this a little bit, but it's a great question. I think we just need to look a little more closely at that word sovereign. When we think of sovereign, we think of what we would do if we were in charge of everything and had the control and the power of the universe, right? But God is not the way we are. So he uses his sovereign powers not to micromanage and control everything under him. His idea is to give us freedom and give us that that opportunity to make our own choices. Like a wise parent isn't micromanaging everything their kids do, but understands that it's important to give them some freedom. Now that might sound a little scary to be in a world where God gives us freedom, but we can trust him about the end. Um, Revelation 21 says that one day God will rid the world of evil and pain and bring true justice God will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And he will make everything new. Thank you, Kathy. So here, this is our final question for Vic. And we're, I love that we're wrapping up with this because this is kind of a more practical question for us. So what is the best way to learn about the Bible? This is from someone who has not been actively attending church for over 45 years and wants to get started. So how do we learn about the Bible if we're brand new to it? I love that question. <clears throat> Let me just say four things. <clears throat> Excuse me. First of all, to the person who wrote that question, we're glad you're here uh, at COH. Uh, our church was designed for people like you, and many of us here were, uh, have been in where you are. So, welcome. Uh, the second thing I'll say is, that, um, is this. Just begin where you are, and don't beat yourself up for where you're not. Tim Mackey, one of my favorite Bible scholars, says that that the Bible was written as what he calls meditation literature. That is, the Bible wasn't meant to be read just once. It was meant to be read over and over. And each time you read it, you ponder over what you're reading. And gradually, you'll understand more and more. And as you do it, over time, you'll discover it'll begin transforming your ways of thinking and how you live. The third thing I would suggest is to commit yourself every day to reading and reflecting on a passage from the Bible. It's the first thing that I do every morning when I wake up after I have some coffee. Um, And if you're just starting out, I would suggest following the COH Bible reading plan that you can find on the, the website um, it's what Kathy and I have used for years, and it's a really helpful guide and keeps you on track. 
The fourth thing I'll say is this. Before you read one of the 66 books of the Bible, I'd suggest that you watch the Bible Project's five to seven minute overview video of that book. They are just fantastic. Kathy and I watch them whenever we start reading through a new book of the Bible. Um, and they're so good that I assign them to my classes um, at, at PBA. Watching them will go a long way to helping you um, understand what you're reading and to read with profit. So think about, go, think about it like going to Bible college seven minutes at a time without having to pay, to pay the tuition costs. <laughs> Let me say uh, three practical things uh, that people can do here. Um, one is our church uses what we call the SOAP journaling process, and it's, and it's a great way to get, some pra- to get something practical out of what you're reading in your daily uh, Bible reading. It's a simple process, and you can f- um, look on the web, our website uh, to find out how to do that. Second, if you haven't uh, yet taken COH's four-week connections class, um, they talk about how to read the Bible uh, well, and it's a great place to learn that. And you can sign up for that uh, for the next one in the fall. Three, one of the best ways to grow um, in your understanding of the Bible is through reading it together in community. Um, we have a Sunday morning group uh, that I'm part of, and it's, it's amazing when you read the Bible together, the things that you discover from others that you never would have. Um, and uh, so I'd encourage you to join a small group. Uh, over the summer, uh, we're offering to connect uh, you to summer Bible triads. Keith was talking about it before, where you can discuss the Bible reading with others. If you do that, I can guarantee that it will ch- turbocharge your understanding of the Bible. That's a money-back guarantee. Um, Kathy and I, um, we, we read our Bibles separately, but then we go together uh, on a walk, and um, we talk about it, and she's way smarter than I am, and so I learn so much from her. So let me close with just one thing. Um, just like with exercise and eating healthy, you might not notice change from day to day, but over months and years, you'll look back and you'll discover how much you've changed. That's just an encouragement to start where you are and be faithful in the future. Thank you. Can we give them a big round of applause? Thank you, Kathy and Vic. Nope. There we go. We want to just take a moment now. Um, you know, we've been going through these questions. We've been learning a lot, but we know that doesn't really matter how much you know about God if you don't know God. And so we want to end today with just giving a few minutes for you to think about what is your next step that God is asking you to take. And, you know, I think for some of you, it may be that you've had this question that has seemed too scary to ask or that you haven't known if you're allowed to ask. And so maybe you need to take a moment and bring that question to God. Whatever it is, I promise he has heard it before. And I promise he's not going to be offended by it, not going to be disappointed. Bring those hard things to the Lord. And then for some of you, maybe you've been asking all the questions. Maybe you've been asking the same question over and over. 
And you know, the thing is that on this side of heaven, we are not always going to get all of our questions answered or we're not going to get that answer we're looking for. And so there's a time to start asking those questions. And then sometimes I think there's a time to stop asking those questions and to choose to trust in God's character and to have faith even while you're carrying around those unanswered questions. So we're going to take just a few minutes while Keith plays the piano. Our prayer teams are going to come forward and just take a moment at your seat or the altars open and just ask God, what is the next thing that you need to do? Father God, thank you that you are a God who tells us to come to you just as we are, carrying all of our baggage and questions and doubts. Thank you for eagerly scanning the horizon and waiting for us to come. Lord, help us, um, help us to know the next thing to do to just step deeper in faith into relationship with you. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Friends, as you leave this place today, remember that we are called to love the Lord with our heart, with our soul, with our strength, and with our minds. And so as you go, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.